Good morning. We are going to be opening up this morning these verses in Micah chapter 6. Um, we're going to read from verse 1 and we're going to go and we're going to read until verse 8 just to put this in context for us this morning. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation and we'll begin at verse 1. And it reads this, the indictment of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says, arise Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring fountains of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What does the Lord require? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, 10, 000, uh, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, would you still our hearts? Lord, would you remove distractions? Would you speak to each and every one of us? Lord, this morning, would you work a small part of your transforming power into our lives? Amen. Micah's call, along with his contemporaries, along with Isaiah, with Amos and Hosea, was to puncture the spiritual pride that the Israelites had. There was real complacency. There was an arrogance and there was an ignorance amongst the people. The prophets were coming into a land where people were full of self-righteousness, where people swaggered about with pride, with no understanding of what it was to follow God, no understanding of what it was to repent. And that was the call of Micah. The call of Micah was to bring the people to repentance. And what we see here in the frame, in, in the outworking of a court case, this kind of imaginary court case where the mountains are the jury between God and the people of Israel, we see this massive case. The accusations are so big that they call them mountains as witnesses. The word indictment means a formal charge or accusation of a serious crime. There's real weight in this. There's a real problem here. We read in verse 3, we're going to quickly kind of go through these first five verses. I want to focus in verses 6 to 8 this morning. But in verses 3, we read that they felt God had become a burden to them. It was more hassle than it was worth to follow God. Do you know what? It doesn't really matter. Who's God? How does God affect my life? I don't care. Let's go. Let's just keep swagging about. Let's be, let's be full of pride. We're good people. We can do this. We don't need God. 
We've got a lot of stuff. We're wealthy people. We've got everything that we need. That was the attitude. That was the attitude at the period, at the time of the people. And how horrible is that? But as we open this morning, how easy is that? How easy is that attitude that, do you know what? I've got everything. I've got everything and I don't need God. How easy can it be for us to be like these Israelites and to view God as a burden? To view our service of God as a burden. Something that's inconvenient. Something that's completely irrelevant to our lives. And as we move into verses 4 and 5, they've forgotten that it was God that removes their burdens. He gives us these examples of his faithfulness to the people. I think it's incredible that he gives them the examples of freeing the slaves from Egypt. That God wanted to bless them rather than curse them with the mention of Balak and Balaam. At Shittim where the covenant was broken back in Numbers 25. And at Gilgal where it was renewed. All these examples point to the faithfulness of God to his people time and time and time again. His people do wrong, God stays faithful. This pattern repeats itself and repeats itself and it continues to repeat itself. But do you know what? They'd forgotten. They'd ignored it. They'd become ignorant people. So why the indictment? Why the judgment upon God's people? Because they were living lives of disobedience. They were living lives that were sinful. And I think it's interesting that as we frame this, that as we look at the context of this, that this is written in the context of our work. And I think that's really, really important, that the principles, the three things that are given to us, are all within the context of work. They're not in the context of of worship, of gathering together, but they are in the context of how we work, of our attitudes to work, of how we treat people when we work. We read at the beginning of chapter 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Further on in verse 6, we read, Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? And, the bag, and with the bag of deceitful weights, your rich men are full of violence. He's talking about corrupt practices. He's talking about people that have left God out of their daily interactions. Of people that are exploiting the poor. Something that has no place whatsoever in the kingdom of God. I want us first to look at the reality here. The reality that faced the Israelites. What's so sad as we move into verses 6 and 7 is that Israel's response proves God's point. It says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's a stupid answer. It's an ignorant answer. It's a sarcastic answer. It's an answer for people that think that they can bargain with God. 
And it got me thinking, when people are ignorant of something, you don't really know how to respond. I looked for a couple of ridiculous answers from some TV shows. Uh, and this came from The Weakest Link. And asked somebody, what insects are found hovering over lakes? The person paused and said, crocodiles. <laughs> the next question she asked somebody was, in the Lord's Prayer, what word beginning with H, meaning blessed, comes before that be thy name? Pause. Howard was the answer. Was the Tyrannosaurus Rex a carnivore or a herbivore? No, it was a dinosaur, was the answer. Or what day is Christmas Day uh, traditionally celebrated in the UK, to which the answer was Wednesday? <laughs> Ridiculous. But clearly people don't know what they're talking about. And when you're ignorant of something, how can you be expected to know about it? How can you be expected to give the right answer if you have no idea what you're talking about? The reality was ignorance. That's the first reality we see from the Israelites here. We see an ignorant people. And that response, that's what we get. God's own people were so ignorant of the expectations of their God. The reality here is that God's chosen people were not choosing God. That they would rather their own way than God's way. And that's why Michael was there. He was there to speak into this situation. He's urging them. He's urging them to turn back to God. To repent for what they've done wrong. How often can we be like that? How often can we be ignorant? Actually, we've no idea. We've no idea what God's expectations are of us because we're not engaging with God, because we're not opening His Word. How often do we go home, we put our Bibles down from a Sunday, where is it next Sunday? It's exactly the same place that I left it last week because it's not been touched. Or we flip open our phone app and what's the passage that's on screen? It's the same passage that we were reading last Sunday because I've not opened it since last Sunday. How do we expect to break our ignorance? How do we expect to know our God's if we're not prepared to go and know our God in the way that he has revealed himself to us. What was wrong with the Israelites' response? The reality was selfish. They were trying to bargain with God. They were trying to find God's price with this sense of sarcasm. They were raising the stakes. They said, how about a calf? Maybe that, a nice calf, a year old, it's in its prime, it's good. Let's go for it. God, how will that do? If I give you that, will you just ignore the sin? Will you ignore the bad stuff? No, okay. Let's go a thousand rams. How about that? Come on. Come on, gods. You've got to like that. That's a nice sacrifice. No? Okay. Then it gets utterly ridiculous. Fine. Surely God's going to be bought by 10,000 rivers of oil. Surely God's going to go, wow, amazing. My people are bringing me such sacrifices. Surely this is going to do it. And then they go utterly ridiculous and say, what about my firstborn child? Something that there's no space for anywhere in Scripture. Something that goes against God's own law. Something utterly ridiculous. Instead of confessing their sins, they say, what can we do to get rid of God? What can, what's the least we can do? We've got tons of stuff. He's talking into rich people here. He's talking into corrupt practices here. People that don't know how they're treating people. 
They don't understand what they're doing to others. And this, this question, this response, shows us the vast ignorance that they have of their sins. It shows us how shallow their faith was, how shallow their expectation of God was, that God, the almighty God, that they could buy him off with some oil. They didn't understand. They didn't understand the cost of forgiveness. But the sins of the Israelites was vast. We read of everything from idolatry to what we read there. The seizing of property. The failed leadership in the temple. The corrupt business practices. The violence. There was so much that was wrong. The reality is Israel was full of sin. How awful is it though that they didn't see it? They didn't understand it. They didn't see the need to repent of their sin. How often can we be like that? What can I do? I need to do something to try and make it up to God. I need to do something to canvas over it. Without getting to the heart of the matter. Without coming before God for forgiveness. Why? Because that's painful. It's difficult. It's hard to come before God. Yet God so easily receives us, yet we find it so hard. We try to do so many things to take away, so many things to not get to the heart of the matter. These guys thought it was all about the outward. They thought it was all about the appearance. And you know, an inspection of the outward behavior was good. These weren't basic sacrifices these guys weren't saying i've got a bunch of apples you can have the rotten one god they weren't coming before them with ridiculous things they were big offerings they weren't bare minimums from the outside they looked like serious people and they were outward focused mark 10 good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Those words we heard from Paul this morning. Follow me. Genesis 4 again, we see in Cain and Abel, the same thing. Two sacrifices that look acceptable. One that's in the right place, one that's not. We know the story that follows that. Surely these sacrifices were good. Surely bringing an abundance of stuff before God was good. So far beyond the minimum requirement. We see in this first story a man that thinks he's right. A man that comes up to, God, eh, to Jesus and says, you know what, I've got this sorted. What do I need to do? And he wants a pat on the back. He wants Jesus to say, do you know what? You've got eternal life, brother. You've got it sorted. You need to do nothing. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, get rid of all the stuff and follow me. Do what's important. Get rid of the rest because all it is is a distraction to you. Cain bringing his offering of fruit. Surely it was good. Surely it will satisfy God. From the outside, it looks okay. How often is that us? Do we look okay? Do we care about looking okay? But what's inside is rotten. That's what we see in this example. We see a brother that is rotten that ends up killing his brother because he's angry at God. Because he is rotten inside. Where is your heart? 
Has church become a routine? Has the reading of scripture become a routine? Has your heart been covered with this veneer of religious activity that says, if I keep doing this, God is going to find me okay? If it is, I want to tell you that your relationship with Christ Jesus is so much more. It is so much more than plodding along and just doing the little things that we think are okay. Our freedom that we know through the redemptive work of Christ is so much more. Our freedom that we know in Christ is so much more. Christ brought us into relationship with himself so that we might be a radical people. A people that are so in love with Christ, that so want to follow Christ, that are so willing to do his will, that we are transformed. And because we are transformed, people around us are transformed. How does God want us to act? What does he want us to do? What does he want the Israelites to do? That at the minute is just a cesspit full of sin. That's all this is. Full of corrupt people that think they can cover over their sins. Very simply, he says this, do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Three challenges, three things, three expectations of a person that is in a covenant relationship with God. I think it's interesting, the parallel we see in Matthew 23 is Christ is pointing out the faults and the scribes and the Pharisees. He says this, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Surprise, surprise, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Again, in the context of work, justice, mercy, faithfulness. We see that this wasn't just a specific call to the Israelites 750 years before Christ, but actually this was also a call to the people around Christ that today this is a call to us. It's the continual call of our God. I think it's an interesting reflection that 750 years later, the guys were no better at this. God was still saying the same things to them. Stop being obsessed with the external. Stop being obsessed with looking good and get your heart right. The first thing we do is do justice. As Christians, to do justice means living lives that are responsible. It means living lives that we understand have an impact in every area of society. What we do, where we buy from, how we act, who we do business with, everything has an effect. Everything has an effect. Matthew seven twelve, the golden rule. I think it captures something of what it means to do justice. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Throughout scripture, all you've got to do is open the book and we see ordinary people doing incredible things that bring justice. Obedient people doing what God calls them to do. God desires us to live a life of respect. Everybody is made in the image of God, follower of Christ or not. Everyone is made in the image of God and everybody deserves respect. They deserve to be treated with our integrity. They deserve to be treated with love. So what's the application of that? What do we do? We first must make sure that we are just. 
We must make sure that what we are doing, that we live just lives. God is speaking to the community of people. He's speaking to Israel. He's not speaking to an individual. We are a community. God is speaking to us. How do we, as Hamilton Baptist Church, do justice? How do we support justice? How are we just people in every area of our lives? We cannot be a people that do justice unless we have been justified by faith in Christ. We need to know true justice to do justice. Why? Because only we as Christians understand sin. We understand that Christ satisfied God's need for justice. And that we are free to seek real justice. Does the way you conduct yourself, the way that you treat others, your interactions, your dealings with other people, do they live a life? Do they reflect the life of a person? That has been transformed by Christ. Ultimately our God. Is a just God. And a just God hates injustice. In James chapter 1 we read. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world unstained from the world to be in this world but not of this world God hates injustice God hates oppression we must be a people as God's chosen people that care for the uncared for that look out for the marginalized that look out for the poor for the orphan for the needy for those that are in a foreign land how awful is this context that Michael is speaking to well-to-do people, vastly wealthy people that are ripping off the poor. Are so obsessed with more, so obsessed with more, they are seeing people's lives ruined because they want more. It's so easy for us to be selfish, isn't it? It's so easy to be selfish. One of the greatest injustices we succumb to is self-righteousness. The belief that I don't need Jesus because I am good. We fail to see that Jesus is the judge judged in our place. The words of Karl Barth, I love that. The judge that is judged in our place. Our judge that took the stand, that took the hit for us. For our acts of injustice. For our acts of selfishness. For our rebellion against God, Christ was the judge that was judged in our place. Only as we recognize that we fall so far short of God and we cling to that cross of Christ, can we understand, can we participate in God's working of restoring lives. To restoring the church. To restoring the world. We know this, we say it time and time again, that we are to be lights in this world. But we are to be lights of restoration, we are to be lights of healing into this world. We are to be lights of justice into this world. The difference between the church and, and everything else, every other organisation, every other entity, everything else that involves people, is that we're not blown back and forth by culture. 
Yes, we have opposition. We have massive opposition throughout this world. But still we stand firm. When we seek justice, we know what we're looking for. We're asking for real justice of the real God who hates sin. I don't know about you, but you see this word justice and you think, what can I do? I'm so small, I'm so insignificant. There's so much we can do, and it starts in the small things. It starts with how we conduct ourselves. Time and time again, there are so many examples of Christ using the poor as examples, of Christ spending time with the poor and the marginalized. Why? Because he loved them and because he cared for them. And so must we. I think a helpful question to ask ourselves is who will be hurt by my decision? In a justice sense, in a small way, things like when we buy clothes, how easy is it? How many of us actually look at the, the places that we buy clothes and the implications that those factories have? It would be really scary. You go and do that research and you look at the people that are impacted by such small decisions like that, by where we buy our clothes, have massive ramifications across this world. That's my challenge. How do you do justice? How do you cling to God, the right God, the God that is just in your workplace, in your school, in your friendship groups? Secondly, and more quickly, we're called to love kindness. Um, if, you read the, if you've read, if you got an ESV translation, the footnote says, or oh, steadfast love. At the NIV and the KJV, it says love mercy. And I prefer this word mercy. And I quite like this footnote of steadfast love. R.C. Sproul would use the word loyal love. And all of these help paint us a brilliant picture. R.C. Sproul will say that this word that it comes from, this word has said, this Greek word, is one of the most incredible words that there is for explaining this covenant. This unchanging love of God. It says that God loves us. Therefore, we love others. The covenant, the loyal love binds us to God and it binds us to each other. It says that because I have been set free, I will live in that life of freedom. I will live a life that is free. I will live a life that is free from the power of sin and the power of darkness because my God is bigger than sin. And this loyal love is such a radically different uh, idea, such a radically different thing to what we see going on in the Judah of Micah's day. It's so different. Because there was such an absence of love. There was such an absence of love in this culture and the practices that were going on here. It speaks so directly against individualism. So directly against the question, what's in it for me? If that's our first question, we need to look at ourselves. If our first question is, what's in this for me? There's something wrong. There's something wrong that if our first response to everything is, if it suits me, I'll do it. This loyal love, this mercy that is shown to others is the direct opposite of something that's convenient, something that's reasonable. That if we're rational people and we write little tables of pros and cons, that you know what? This kind of love, there will be more uh, cons than there is pros. It's a love that where there's no hope of rewards, no hope of recognition. It's a love that remains loyal 
to fellow humans, to male, to female. Why? Because they are made in the image of God, however marred that image may be. We must be a people that are loyal to God, that are loyal to the Word of God, that are loyal to the people of God. It was mentioned last week uh, by a visiting preacher, these words, the lost, the last, and the least. That Christ spent time and loved these people. The parable of the sheep, the lost sheep, he leaves the 99 for the one, the prodigal son, the Gentile centurion, surely the last person that Christ would help. His encounter with Zacchaeus and his teaching that the kingdom of God is for children. For those that are like these, for those that recognize their helplessness. It shows the care that our God has for the least. There is this steadfast, this loyal love. This loving kindness, this loving mercy that binds us together as Christians. That binds us with mankind as those that are made in the image of God. You know, I've been massively encouraged this week. Um, I spent Thursday and Friday gardening with a bunch of our young people um, and it was great we went out and we served for someone older in our congregation and for me it was just an incredibly overwhelming experience to see over a dozen of our young people just getting down and dirty and just doing something to serve somebody in this congregation it blew me away it was incredible to see these guys understand what it is to serve what it is to understand to do something with no reward no recognition but just to get on and do something why because we must love others it was incredible it was so overwhelming just to see that this understanding and just this put in to action kindness that's all it was these guys were on holiday there were so many better things that they could have done than go and serve somebody than go and have me moan at them in garden and get covered in mud there were so many better things they could have done but they didn't because they understand kindness and they understand what it is to go and to serve those around them. Selfishness prevented the Israelites from doing the work of God. Self, selfishness was a mark of the Israelites. Let us be different to that. Let us be different to the scribes and the Pharisees that again were marked by the selfishness. Let us not be a people that selfishness is associated with. How merciful was our Christ, not only on earth to those that were at the bottom, but to us, all of us who were at the bottom. How merciful was Christ to us? How do you show mercy? How do you show kindness in your day-to-day -day interactions? How do you show those round about you that you care? whether it's family, whether it's work colleagues, whether it's customers or colleagues, whoever it is, how do you show them something of Christ, something of Christ's mercy? Look for opportunities. God is calling us as Christians to be selfless people, whether at work, whether at home. It seems so trivial Kindness seems like such a trivial word, doesn't it? It feels so passive. It feels just being nice, but it's so much more. It shows people that we care. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. The sins of the Israelites, they thought was hidden behind this veneer of just religious stuff. They thought it was all all right. They thought they'd fool God. 
But do you know what? The routine in their worship didn't come from their hearts. There's nothing wrong with routine. Routine is a good thing. But our hearts have to be right. I think without this third requirement, without this requirement to walk humbly, it, the first two things can look like just this kind of social gospel kind of thing. Look like this idea of just go and do nice stuff and it'd be all about that. But this brings us back. It can feel like those are add-ons sometimes to the gospel. Add-ons to being a Christian. But this third point brings us right into this. Why? Because all of these express something of the character and the will of God. Our motivation to act justly, our motivation to love kindness, to love mercy, comes from God. We're incapable of acting justly and loving mercy in the fullest unless we are walking humbly with our God. He was telling these people, he was telling these rich people, stop thinking you're all that. Stop being stupid. Be humble. Get on your knees before the living God and repent. That's all it is. It's amazing, isn't it, that there's so many prophets and that's all it is. Get on your knees and repent before your God. Repent before your God. And you know what? Time and time and time again they didn't do it. God's rebuking them because they're unjust, because they're merciless, because they're arrogant. They were using their powers for personal gain. They were using unjust scales in the market, which uh, tried to oppress people. They tried to always give them less than they were paying for. They were showing no love. They were showing no care for their fellow citizens. To walk humbly with our God means that we must examine our hearts. We must depend on God rather than ourselves. And you know, there's this constant battle in all of us, isn't there? This, this battle between my desire and God's desire. But you know, no matter the amount of sacrifice, no matter the level of religious activity, no matter the amount of stuff we do in church, it'll never replace a heart that is committed to Christ. Where are you this morning? Where are you in your walk with God? Maybe it's not as extreme as the Israelites. Maybe you're not a corrupt business person. But something of your walk with Christ has become a routine. And if it is, the glorious news of the gospel is that Christ is waiting for you to return. That Christ is waiting for you. For you to come before him and repent. For you to come before him and say, do you know what, God, I'm sorry. That's the beauty of our God. It's as simple as that. To come before him with hearts that are in the right place. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you've never made a commitment to Christ and I urge you this morning to consider it. There's nothing greater than a life that is lived in Christ. Or maybe you're on the journey of just wrestling with this stuff, of wrestling with your pride, of wrestling with your selfishness, of wrestling with what it is to be a Christian in such a difficult and wicked world. And if that's you, keep going. Turn to God at every stage. Open the word of God. Find out what God says. Listen to God. Rest in God. Rest not in yourself. I just want to finish really, really briefly. What's our reality? Our reality is one of hope. 
God desires humility from all of us, which means that we are attentive to his word, that we're focused on pleasing him. We never let this goal of glorifying Christ out of our sights. It means that we turn our back on our own desires. You know, I love this passage because it just shows us something that God cares about every bit of us. He cares about our work. He cares about how we act at work, the decisions that we make at work, how we treat others at work, how we use our authority at work. He cares about all of it. And we're called to be a just people, a merciful and a loving and a humble before God people. Let's be a people that are marked by our justice, by our mercy, and by our humility. You know, it's a joy to be the people of Christ. This morning, if you lack that joy, come before God. Ask God for a taste of what it is to know God's joy. God calls us and he requires us to do justice, mercy, and to walk humbly before our gods. Let's not, our rea- let, let's not let our reality be one like the Israelites, but let us live in the freedom that we know in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to be able to come before the throne of God, justified and free because of the work of Christ at Calvary. Lord, would you help us day by day? Would you help us to grow in our justice? Would you help us to grow in our mercy and our kindness to others? Lord, you are above all. Will we cling to you? Will we cling to you in a world that is so difficult? When everything around us seems so against you, Lord, would we cling to the promise, to the hope that we have in Christ? Lord, you are so good. You are so worthy of our praise. Amen.